As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague from The Athletic, Stuart Mandel. Stu, we got pretty big news. We've talked a lot about expansion. You and colleague Andy Staples had reported back in April about the expectation that there might be a 12-team playoff. What is the latest? The latest is that this is moving even faster than we expected. Uh, we knew that the commissioners were meeting in person in Chicago late next week. And at that point, the subgroup of Jack Swarbrick, the Notre Dame AD, uh, Bob Bowlesby from the Big 12, Greg Sankey from the SEC, and Craig Thompson from the Mountain West was expected to present their recommendation to the larger group. That ended up happening today as we're recording this on Thursday. Um, as Nicole Auerbach confirmed, it is officially the recommendation of that working group that the playoff moved to 12 teams and an interesting wrinkle we always thought it would be power five automatic berths plus a group one for the highest ranked group of five champ but at least their recommendation and it's just a recommendation would be to just say six highest ranked conference champions which means theoretically if two group of five champs finished higher than the pac-12 or the acc champ then uh then they would get it too, which is a, you know, if that's true, I to me, the most dramatic thing of the whole thing is what that does for the group of five after all these years of not having any real access to have possibly have access for more than one. Yeah, I mean, look, it, I don't think it necessarily has to be an eight and five conference champ that wins. I mean, we've seen plenty of examples where you could have a team that is that is nine and four. I don't think you'd have an eight and three, or I guess it would be a nine and three team, or even a ten and three team at that point. Um, but we've seen some examples in recent years, especially if it's a group of five that's undefeated, that they could that there could be multiple ones that could be above them. Anyway, I'm sure this is all very feels very abrupt and very jarring because before that press release in late April, there was really no inkling 
Like we knew they've been talking about it for a long time, but there was no inkling that anything was imminent. And it went so quickly from, hey, we've been working on this for a while now, and we're talking about not just eight, but 10, 12, 16, to now we have this recommendation, which is again from a subgroup of the of four, three commissioners and an AD. Now the larger group of commissioners, all the FBS commissioners have to reach a consensus and then and then they have to get it approved by the presidents. Is that all going to happen in the span of the next two weeks? Not sure, but it's been trending this way for a while and people are like, wait, what? I thought we were going eight teams. What happened? What happened is the SEC threw its support behind 12 because if the SEC, if you're going to expand the playoff, there's no incentive for the Big Ten, the Big any of the other conferences to agree to a system that just goes from four best to eight best with no guarantees of access for anybody. And the SEC, and I had never really thought about this until recently, why would they agree to an eight-team playoff where there's only two at-large berths, right? Because, you know, in a lot of years, they would have been able to claim three of the top eight or four. Um, so 12 teams get, has six at-larges. And who knows? The SEC, Andy Staples ran the numbers. Wow, there was one year, I think 2012, where they would have had five of the top 12. Well, look at it this way in terms of the the kind of wrinkle in this that a lot of us didn't expect, which was that you could have the potential for maybe two uh, group of five teams in there. The SEC is in essentially no danger of having its uh, champion be lower ranked. I mean, that is right now, essentially, it's probably a Pac-12 and potentially maybe a Big 12 concern, but it's no, but it's it's not a SEC concern at all. So if you're Greg Sankey, you're looking to say, hey, we can get four teams in here, um, probably realistically often, then it makes sense. Now, one of the people I talked to had made the case, you know, on how quickly can they turn this around because the contract isn't supposed to expire anytime that soon. But what I was told was, you know, given the last year and how everything unfolded, everything is on the table and they do not want to leave money on the table. So what do you expect them to do on that front? I think that's to be determined. Basically, your two scenarios are we go another five years in the current system and when this contract's up, they take a 12-team playoff to the market. And that if you're maximizing for revenue, that's the way to do it. You want multiple bidders. You want Fox to try to get in on it, et cetera. But we're, we're, you know, by all indications, the impetus for all this is that it's growing stale, that the same teams are going over and over and over again. If that's the case, do you really want to risk another five years of that and the damage that might do to interest in the playoff and in the sport? And so if you rip it up early, the logical start date would be 2023. Not this season, not next season, but the season after Why is that, a logical start when, date in 2023 instead of 2020? Because of the rotation of the playoff bowls, how they rotate every three years, uh, 2023 would be the start of the last rotation. So you'd be coming in clean in terms of um, all six of those bowls have hosted an equal So you're still giving some just, preferential treatment to the bowls, though. It's also just hard to turn something around like that that quickly. They're going to have to... I mean, if they're going to do it early, then ESPN is going to be the exclusive. You know, they have the right to 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 extend it, and that's going to be a very complex negotiation. I don't think you can turn that around and suddenly be doing this in even as soon as next season. When they went to four teams, 
it came out in the, they decided that in the summer of 2012 and it started in the fall of 2014. So I'm just saying realistically, that's the soonest and they're just going to have to decide, are we maximizing for revenue or are we maximizing for what we think is healthiest for the sport? Um, I don't think you come out and announce something like this today in 2021 and then come back a month later and say, yeah, but you're going to go through another five years of the current thing. I think once you've put that on out there for people, it behooves you to, uh, to get it going as soon as possible. Okay. Lots of exciting stuff. How do you feel about it? Well, I, I'll be honest. Before late April, I never considered that this was even remotely a possibility. I'd never entertained the idea of a 12-team playoff. I think, frankly, I thought they'll go to eight, and then a few years after that, they'll go to 16. But it actually does make a lot of sense um, in terms of making sure every part of the country feels like they've got a, 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 an opportunity um, and an, and an investment in college football for the for that. I feel like it's not just an opportunity, but where you get into okay, we're in November and these games don't matter for this whole region or this whole conference. Correct. Now, obviously, this is a dramatic transformation from the entire history of the sport, where what made the college football regular season so great for many people was the stakes of any one individual game that one game could knock you out, and that's just not going to be the case anymore. Uh, maybe up until at least the conference championship games. And that's much, it's much going to be much more like the NFL, right? Where at the, at the end of the NFL season, it's not about the Patriots or whoever, uh, the Chiefs, whoever is like 12 and four, they're in. Uh, it's like who's going to get the last spot? Who's going to get the wild card spot? And frankly, those teams often aren't very good. And uh, I think that'll be the case with some of the teams that are up for number 12. But more game, many more games, just number of games that have national ramifications. I mean, it's basically any team in the country that still has a chance at their conference championship will matter uh, right up until the end. And then obviously the teams that still have a shot at the at-large. And I think a cool thing about 12 teams as opposed to eight is that there's something, there's in, there's some sort of incentive for everybody going to that last weekend, even number one undefeated Alabama, you're playing for a first round bye. The top four teams are playing to get a first round bye. Five through eight are playing to host home field in that first round. Um, and then obviously eight through 12 are just trying to get into the playoff. Yeah, I, I think, look, I, I think there'll be some comparisons made to to uh, to the NFL. I mean, realistically, you do have some, you know, there was a Giants team that was nine and seven that won the Super Bowl 10 years ago. Uh, there was a Ravens team right after that was ten and six, that had six losses, so I don't think it's quite that same degree. But but quite honestly, Stu, you and I have talked about this offline. There is a lot of um, there's a lot of feeling of just like what you're conditioned to, right? And I feel like you know for a while we've been conditioned to that's just how the NFL is from week to week, and you just kind of ride it out in a different way, and whereas the, the college season seems to be building towards the end in a different way. And I think we'll adjust. I mean, some people may not like it, but I think we will definitely adjust to it as such. You always, everybody always adjusts. And um, look, I mean, there's going to be, there's not going to be nine and seven teams, but there's going to be nine and three teams. There might be, I don't know, if a team loses in the conference, they might be nine and four. Uh, and that's a team that, through the entire history of the sport would not even be remotely thought of as a team that should play, have a shot to play for the national title. 
I don't think a team like that's going to win the national title unless it's like, like let's say Alabama last year, uh, Mac Jones got hurt for a few games halfway through the season and they lost a couple games. But they managed to finish 12th and uh, and now he's back and they're at full strength. I guess a team like that could pull it off. But for the most part, you know, if you're just good but not great, it's not realistic in college football that you're going to get it. You would have to win four straight games to win the national championship. Stu, to me, the team that is the most of the wild cards and how they fit is actually, as much as Clay Helton gets railed upon, in uh, especially in Southern California, that team that started with Max Brown the beginning of the year and they got blown out by Alabama in, in Arlington, 52-6, to six, and they opened 1-3, but that was the beginning of Sam Darnold. So they finished the year on a roll and their offense was really dynamic and they blew out Notre Dame and they finished the year number 12 coming into the season. So they would have made it um, into the 12, but, and they ended up beating a Penn state in a great game. I would have given them a chance to be, to win the playoff at that point. That's a great example. That's a team that, um, I mean, the entire history of college football, we've placed an emphasis on, you have to be the best team over the course of the whole season. We're trying to figure out who was the best team in college football in a given season. USC, if they had pulled that off, was the best team over the last two months of the season. You know, they were the team that got hot at the end. And that's not something that we've ever really entertained in college football. But we have in every other sport. Every other sport acknowledges that. I mean, the Tampa Bay Bucks last year, right? Where they were uh, 10 and 6, 11 and 5. They were not one of the dominant teams of the season, but they came together at the end and they won and there was nobody, you know, we just accept that that happens in the NFL. Nobody says like, oh, they were a fraud. They shouldn't have, they shouldn't have gotten in in the first place. That probably will be the reaction at first with college football and then it'll become normalized. Yeah. I mean, and, and look, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, they'll get a lot of this stuff ironed out sooner than later. I, as you said, I think feel like they are, they are moving quickly because for a lot of factors as we, we got into. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Pivoting to a much darker and, frankly, more important story. Um, so it's been in the news for, I feel like, a couple years about uh, a former doctor, a uh, long-deceased doctor, Robert Anderson at Michigan, accused of um, sexually molesting patients for decades at Michigan. And then a report came out in May 
that was, I believe, the first reference to, you know, among the, unfortunately, many people at Michigan, many leaders at Michigan who were warned at some point and did nothing, that several Mich- former Michigan football players, because this guy was the team doctor, had gone to Bo Schembechler and said and, and described what was happening and that he did nothing about it. And the big bombshell on Wednesday is that Bo Schembechler's own adopted son, Matthew Schembechler, has come forward and said he was one of them. He told his father in 1969 that Anderson had sexually molested him during a physical examination. This is from the Detroit News to play in a, when he was 10, to play in a youth football league. And the elder Schembechler, who was coaching his first season, went into a rage, told him he didn't want to hear about it, punched him in the chest so hard that he flew across the kitchen floor, his son said. Um, you know, I feel like if you weren't paying attention to this story before, you kind of got it now because, I mean, th- these are... Um, Bo Schembechler is the most revered figure probably in the history of Michigan football, or certainly the last 50 years of Michigan football. And these are just um, completely damning and devastating allegations from, of all people, his own son. Yeah, I read the story. There was a story that uh, Dan Murphy from ESPN had written on uh, Wednesday night. And just looking at it, I think there's a quote at the end. Just, it's really... um, it's jarring. The whole the whole thing is jarring. I mean, you know, a couple of takeaways on this, and we'll find out more later in the day. Um, the son is having a press conference along with one of the players. I actually remember Gilvani Johnson. I know he's before your time. He was a good receiver at Michigan in the eighties. Um, is one of the players who's gonna. When I saw that name, I was like, whoa, I remember him. You know, just um, will also be be there for that and. Stu, when I read this story, like a couple of things came to mind and our colleague Austin Meek has written about this extensively over like the last, I don't know, probably four months or so. But, but, um, two things. The first thing is, uh, man, you have the, the parallels to Penn state and another iconic Mount Rushmore kind of coach in, in Joe Paterno at Penn state and somebody close to the program that, um, you know, he's allegedly basically turned a blind eye towards some of the horrific things that Jerry Sandusky did. And then you have in this case with this doctor who is at the University of Michigan for 37 years, I believe. And, you know, I'm reading this, like, especially the story, the the um, the Dan Murphy story last night. And I was just like, why? Like, why would, like, from a logic standpoint, it's like, why would Bo Schimbeckler, again, uh, trying to couch this allegedly, why would he um, look the other way on such unspeakable, horrific acts when his own son is saying this? You know, it's like, um, I don't I don't know. You know, it just it's just kind of mind boggling the whole thing here. I don't think we'll ever, unless you've been in this position, really understand what it's like. You know, like with the Joe, with the with the infamous Mike McQuarrie, uh, went to Joe Pa's house and, and told him what he had seen. I, I do think that you just don't know how somebody would react to something that seems so incomprehensible. I mean, it's easy with hindsight to say he should have done X, Y, and Z, and he should have. Um, but you probably just don't think that's 
how could this person who I've known for, in his case, decades, um, this doesn't compute. Um, but that's not an excuse. And, you know, I think about like that happened in 2001. When I see 1969, you got to believe that it just was not even remotely part of the culture to for a for a football coach or frankly any authority figure to feel like they had some responsibility to do something there that being said you know to this day there remains some ambiguity about what exactly joe paterno knew and when and you know i that was the such a hard story to cover because it seemed like that you, you weren't allowed to have a middle ground you either believed that he had been enabling a, a pedophile for decades and and his everything he did for you know however many what he coached 44 years should be uh torn down or you know obviously a lot of penn state fans felt he was wrongly vilified and and bring back the statue and bring back the wins there didn't seem to be much middle ground and with this it's like what is a what bo schembechler is alleged to have known and how many people came to him is this isn't there's no ambiguity here his own son says he told him and when he was 10 years old what had happened he said to toughen up it doesn't get that there's no ambiguity there um this this guy could have been stopped decades before uh what do you think it must be like to there there are 100 this report documented hundreds of victims of this doctor what must it be like for them to read this and know that you know one of the most powerful people on the campus could have stopped this long before it happened to them but by the way 1969 was Bo Schembechler's first season there. And he went on to coach in 20 years and become the most storied uh, or the most celebrated coach there. I remember vividly the day he died because it was the day before the big 2006 um, one versus two Ohio State-Michigan game, how that kind of cast a pall over the whole thing. I, I can't. I also can't imagine what it's like to be a Michigan fan who grew up adoring this guy, idolizing this guy maybe, and like this doesn't seem, you know, he was a molder of men. He was, you know, the team, the team, the team. And to to find out that that this happened has got to be pretty incomprehensible. Um, it'll be interesting to see the reaction. I agree. Um, you know, I think for both of us, Bo Schembechler, you know, in terms of just, we, you know, we never covered him. I didn't. Um, you know, he was already gone from the sport from like from Michigan before before I started covering it um you know I I know a lot of people though who have some kind of connection to him I mean look we know people in the media who've written extensively about Michigan right and so um you know another thought that you know like came into my head is we have seen now I feel like in the last decade certainly and it's four Big Ten schools, especially. You know, now you, we we talked about Penn State. There was the horrific scandal, I think, with the with the doctor at Michigan State, as well as one at Ohio State with you know connected to the wrestling program. And there's also a story like this at USC, though I don't think it was specific to athletics. Yeah, and that one, no, that, I, that one was part of the university. And look, I, I don't want to say it's just in those four because certainly, you know, there are some horrible stories all over the place. But just the thing that you, you, you know, when you take a step back, I think you're right is, I mean, you look at people, you know, Bo Schimbeckler was such a revered figure, the team, the team, the team. You know, he was... The, the word I would use is iconic. Um, and, 
I'm curious to see how people, you know, kind of because the the paternal thing was so polarizing, and yeah, I think you were exactly right where it was like you you could it was either you either um, were disgusted by him and outraged, or then there was Penn, a lot of Penn State people who felt like he was wronged in the reaction. And I think they had a hard time, and I don't want to speak for all Penn State people, but I think for a lot of Penn State fans, because he was so, you know, he did such, like in terms of raising a, a, a ton of money for the university in that community, um, he was such a revered figure. Uh, I think that, and so for, for so many Penn State alums, their experience was so tied into Jopa and the Paternos that it was very hard for them to process, I think. Um, I don't know if, I shouldn't say this because I feel like Bo Schimbeckler is, you know, he, he stopped coaching 20 years before Paterno did. Right, so I I don't know if you'd have the same quite the same level of connection there that maybe and I'm not trying to minimize him, but I, you know like I am very curious to see how people kind of process this. Well, it's obviously I mean the big biggest difference is the Joe Paterno the Penn State Sandusky thing blew up and Joe Paterno was still the coach, right? And you know the 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 drama of him being uh, removed as coach within a three day span and the students rioting. You know, it's it, I think it's probably um, it, it. This isn't going to blow up like that did because Bo Schembechler hasn't been the coach. You know, was the coach I think retired in 1988, passed away in 2006, and, and the doc also Jerry Sandusky was still uh, uh, is still alive, and and this doctor that's at the center of this, you know, died decades ago. So, um, and and I think you know, like the Ohio State story is kind of similar to that. Uh, so it doesn't quite reach that, but I do think that, you know, for his estranged son to come out and make these accusations, uh, is about as damning as it gets. So, um, will you think, th- will you think differently of Bo Schimbeckler now because of this? I don't see how you couldn't. Um, and again, it's not one person at the press conference to, like you mentioned, two former Michigan players are coming out to support him and, and make similar allegations. So. Um, I'm not going to get into legacy and all that. So I don't think that's as important as, like I said earlier, I just, I just feel so awful for these hundreds of victims to find out that what happened to them could have, could hundreds could have been avoided. And that's just hundreds that they know about. It's not like every one of his victims has come forward. So, um, that this could have been stopped decades earlier. It's just, it's just disgusting and terrible. All right, Bruce. We're gonna uh, we're gonna get to your mailbag questions in a second, but first, um, a, a former coach who's been very good to both of us and many other members of the media, Jim Donnan, the former Georgia co- coach. We want to send our condolences to him. His wife Mary passed away, um, and uh, just she had a long. Um, she battled. Long lung, she battled. She battled uh, lung cancer. She had other illnesses, and. I mean, I worked with Jim for a long time at ESPN and have kept in touch with him and just know um, so much of his life was about his biggest priority was really taking care of her. And as you know, I think she went into hospice a couple of days earlier um, and just we both uh, send our our best 
to his family and him. Um, I know this is trying time and, and uh, rest in peace to her. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, Bruce, it's time for the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. This first one is a fun one, and I don't believe you're a Marvel movie person, are you? I know I'm not. I am not, but uh, because my son's into the video game, I have seen a lot of it now. Speaking of your son, real quick, you put a clip on Instagram of him from his football game where he he's playing quarterback, but he's a running quarterback, I guess. He takes off into the down the sideline. He has got moves. My goodness. Seven years old, right? Yeah. So here's the problem with this. At one point, he was like, um, he plays quarterback. He does not love, he does not really like playing quarterback because him and another kid on our team who I think were probably best suited to at least running the offense didn't want to throw. He didn't want to throw. Um, like he, threw yeah, he didn't wait basket. to take off. He just he didn't no. wait to see if anybody was open. He just he also made a point that was our that was a playoff game. That was our last game. He made a point to say, "Daddy, this was the only ha- this was the only uh, touch I got." Basically, it was like it was his only carry of the game. And I was like, "Yeah, I screwed that up. I should have let you carry the ball more." So, wait. Oh, you call the plays? I called the plays in the last three games of the season. We had a little coaching shift. So, huh? So. Who who so most plays he passes? No, most plays way more information than anybody wants on first grade football. But uh, most plays we would run out of either a jet sweep, it's a fake jet sweep, um, to one of two running backs, or we give it to to our guy to our receiver coming in motion, or he keeps it. And I didn't realize it, like we didn't do a very, you know, we struggled blocking the other team. And so we ended up running a bunch of wildcat with with, uh, a couple of kids playing quarterback. What I didn't realize was like that he only I wasn't keeping an eye, you know, track of how many carries the kids had gotten. And so he only had that one carry. It was the longest play we had of the game. So yeah, Ben just takes off and jukes several guys in the open field. So I show I actually showed him like so. There's the wonderful stuff you can find on the internet of like whatever it Barry Sanders is 50 greatest runs. I showed him that like a month ago and then I was like, Hey, I want to show you somebody. So I showed him a Reggie Bush USC stuff and it blew his mind that like, you know, that he, that I work with him now. And he was like, wait, Matt was the quarterback on that team. I was like, yeah. And you know, so just to see that stuff and he's like watching it in, you know, whatever. So, um, 
you know, it's it, that part is the the coolest part of the season has been when your kid loves watching film and gets so into it, and that part has been neat. So, did um, you get your jet sweep offense from offense from Dana Holgerson? Uh, no, I got my I got the initially before the season from Bob Stitt. Some of the things we had talked about, which he made a point, and this is the old Colorado School of Mines coach. He said. Yeah, somebody asked me in high school, I was like, I don't know what high school kids can really, I'm paraphrasing, what high school kids can really, you know, handle. Well, I'm talking about first graders. We tried to run it early on. You couldn't even get the snap back there. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a mistake, but um, yeah. So, so. Uh, uh, okay, this pivot was because I, I asked if you watch Marvel movies. I don't, but I do know who Thanos is. Uh so the question from Josh is, what if Thanos snapped his fingers and instantly removed Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Oklahoma, and Georgia football from the earth? No teams, no recruiting, no nothing. They just don't exist anymore. Who would be the new power players? Would there be any surprises or would it just be that the Penn States and Florida, the world's finally move up? I think it would be that. Um, I do think that maybe then Iowa State wins a national title. Well, I think it just, you know, it doesn't change the overall dynamics of that the overwhelming uh, recruiting territory is the South. And so if you're taking Alabama and Georgia out, some other SEC team. Yeah, it's going to be L- it's going to be LSU then or it's going to be Auburn. I would, you know, the the one school that I would be the two schools that I would be curious to see how much different they would be and they're both kind of rebuilding back are Miami and Florida State, right? Because both, you know, some of those schools, uh, not necessarily Oklahoma and Clemson, but certainly Alabama, I feel like has really, really uh, reaped the benefit of them where they had had success before. I think this would give some hope to Tennessee uh, if they don't have to recruit against Georgia anymore. Um, in the Big Ten, I certainly think Penn State would be a big beneficiary. Um, or maybe, maybe that allows Wisconsin to break through. Wisconsin's had, what, so many... Big Ten title games where they lost to Ohio State. Maybe they get in and, and break through. And then, of course, you've just removed uh, five programs, none of whom are in the West. So does this, does suddenly Oregon um, become one of the national powers? I think Matt Campbell it would build the Gonzaga of Ames right then and there if you take Oklahoma and those other teams out. So you think they would, would Iowa State... If, the, if these five teams are zapped from the earth tomorrow, does Iowa State get to the playoff before Texas? Mm, yes. I, I would agree in the short term, but I feel like in the long term, Texas Texas now has the ability to recruit, to sign all the guys that would have gone to Oklahoma. Uh, you got to think, well, let's not also... <laughs> well, actually, the single biggest beneficiary would be Oklahoma State, right? They suddenly Mike Gundy rules the whole has that whole state to himself. Yeah, I guess. I mean, but I mean, look, Oklahoma's you know doing really a lot of damage all over the Southwest, and they're getting into other parts too. So I don't know. I still think Iowa State is better positioned at that point um, than than anybody else in the Big Twelve, just because of where they are right now. Oh, we've also had one huge oversight here. Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Notre Notre Dame Dame suddenly, I mean, if you're saying like, okay, if these are the five most prominent programs in the country right now, I think Notre Dame's sixth uh, in terms of recent 
their success recently, but they just haven't been able to quite get to this elite level. And suddenly their their biggest obstacles have all been removed from the field. Yes, cue the, cue the dancing Brian Kelly tweet. Um, that's what it would be. <laughs> Next question, Stu, is from Dave Kreitzman from Auburn, California. Stu and Bruce, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to your thoughts on college football. Your podcast is a must while I run the trails in the Sierra foothills. Very nice, Dave. Um, As this is a relatively slow time for college football news, my question focuses on more of the tradition and pageantry of the game. I would love your take on the best college football uniforms. For example, the away jerseys for USC and the home jerseys for UCLA are hard to beat. Moving further away from the West Coast, the Auburn away jerseys are a winner. On the negative side, any fan who who pays to attend a home game at the Horseshoe and watches the Buckeyes charge onto the field in those hideous all-black uniforms deserves a rebate on their ticket. Thanks for your opinion on this lighthearted topic. Okay, much to to unpack from Dave's question— what are the uniforms that you like the most? Can we can we just he mentions the Ohio State All Black? Can we just throw out alternate uniforms entirely? Because I just feel like we would. First of all, it's impossible except, to remember them all. Except, yeah, I agree. The alternate uniforms I I think I like the best happen in the Army Navy game. Yeah, those are great. I'm not saying there aren't any good ones. There certainly are. It's just hard to like. I don't have an encyclopedic encyclopedic recall of every uniform that our Oregon has ever. Uh, put yeah. on or or whatnot, but I'm with him on the UCLA home jerseys. I think those are some of the best jerseys in college football. I've I think that the Texas burnt orange jerseys. I think maybe I like these somewhat unique uh, um, offshoots of those colors. Uh, they come to mind for me as well. Um, he mentioned USC's away jerseys. I don't know. It's hard for me to get on board with too many away jerseys because they basically are just they're white. Um, I'm not saying that they aren't. There aren't some good ones out there, but I just think like the solid colored ones always draw my attention first. What about you? Um, uniforms I like. It's weird. I like the color purple. I like TCU uniforms. Hmm. Um, that's a that's an interesting one. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm trying to think what else I really liked. Um, I think Michigan's uniforms are pretty iconic. Certainly the they're, helmet the, is, yeah. They're one of those schools that it's like, why do you ever wear alternate jerseys? <laughs> you have such a good one already. Um, I'm just thinking if there's anything else that really kind of stands out for me. Um, when uh, on, In the spirit of this, so when we went to the College Football Hall of Fame, I know... Uh, uh, you've been there, right? Mm-hmm. They have this display of every helmet of every college football program in the sport right now. What is the one that is your favorite? Helmet? Yes. Um, yeah, I think I got to go with Michigan. I think it's the, the all-time iconic helmet. Notre Dame would be up there as well. Uh, that is... What was the other one? Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Oh, can I put in a shout out for LSU? I, 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 you know, they generally wear white home or away, and I do think that because that's their primary uniform, and you primarily associate them with that, uh, that they're that's a really cool one as well. Okay, for me, my favorite helmet, um, and it's one I'd never seen before until I went to the Hall of Fame, 
is from the University of West Florida, the Argonauts. Have you seen wow. it? Wow. I didn't know there was an Argonauts in college football. Yeah. It's, so it's like, it's actually the helmet is like kind of closest to the, to the it's, it's almost like a ground level. Um, but I was like, who is that? And it just popped for me. And I was like, okay. And then somebody on Twitter had mentioned, had, had identified who they were. I was like, yeah. So I just Googled it. Are you talking about the one that says UWF? No. It's, if you go. Um, it's So they have, they have that. They have one that actually has, a, I guess that's an Argonaut <laughs> on its helmet. Basically, it's the, it's the blue with. Um, the shade of all you see are two eyes and the green yep. kind of feather. That's the helmet. I guess this raises the question I've never really thought about, even though I've known that there's a CFL team with this name. What is an Argonaut? I don't know, Still, This is not for the podcast. He appears to have two, he appears to be like, he looks a little bit like the Michigan State Spartan. Yeah. Um, well, okay, worst. He asked for worst. The worst uniforms in college football. Um, let me think about this for a second. I've got an answer. I would say maybe Lehigh. Oh, I didn't know you were going FCS on us. Uh, I was just thinking in terms of the color scheme. It's just it's not uh, not working for me. I got to go with Purdue. I think that I can't imagine what it's like to have brown is your school yeah no i depresses me i think that's a good i think that's a good answer i i do not disagree with purdue either in fact i think it's to iowa state's credit that they pivoted because they used to have uniforms like that and they kind of pivoted away from it and they've really um emphasized is it maroon what was it uh cardinal maybe that it's kind it's similar to usc's yeah yeah all right, let's do this question from Drew. UConn, as an athletic department, is very successful. Everyone is fully aware of the winning ways the men's and women's hoops programs have established, but UConn is also winning games and conference and national titles in sports like field hockey, women's lacrosse, men's soccer, baseball, and more. My question to you is, why is the athletic department seemingly indifferent about finding success on the football field? Given A.D. Dave David Benedict's, David Benedict's background from Auburn and hiring Rhett Lashley as offensive coordinator a few years ago, I'm fairly surprised at the rather lack of urgency surrounding the football program. I think it's fair to say that Randy Edsel's leash has been one of the longest in America the last four seasons. With the move from the American to independence delayed by a year, what should be considered a successful step forward for this program this year? It's a good question. It's a good question because, I mean, we have short memories and people forget now. Like UConn was in the Fiesta Bowl a decade ago. The first run under Randy Etzel was actually pretty good. And then it just it just crumbled. And my sense is that they've just kind of thrown in the towel on football. Um, they made the move from FCS to FBS uh, when Dan Orlovsky was there and built that stadium it's a great stadium and made this big commitment and it's really just gotten them nowhere and in the meantime they've got these great basketball programs and so i mean i think the nothing was more telling than the decision to move to the big east right they most almost all conference realignment decisions are based around football this one was completely about we need to get our storied basketball programs back into a nationally relevant conference. 
at the expense of the football team. The, the football team is now in just no man's land. I don't see how this independent thing is going to work. Um, but I, but maybe, but for whatever reason, moving the, at least to this point, they also have an expressing interest in dropping down. So um, it seems to me that it's kind of a situation where there's no, there's no great answer, and. I'll be curious to see what happens going forward. Success for that program, I think, would be going to a bowl game. Um, they were like, weren't they the first one, the first division, I mean, uh, FBS, FBS one to just say, we're not playing this year? Like, they did not hesitate to just say, we're not going to do this. And and never, you know, unlike the Big Ten and Pac-12, never reconsidered it. Yeah, I mean, look, th- that is a really tough place. Unlike basketball, where New York State basketball is high school basketball is really good. New York state football is not great. And there's just not a lot of football talent in new England. You better like load up in New Jersey. And I think two programs, especially in the similar footprint that are, you know, dismal right now is UConn and UMass. I mean, those are rough jobs. And, you know, you look and think, Ooh, they could be having coaching changes in the not too distant future. I don't know who's going to really jump at those jobs because, um, you know, you look at it and go, man, you're going to have to out evaluate a lot of people because there's just not, there's just not a ton. Like you mentioned UConn going to the Fiesta Bowl. I think they were eight and five. It was 11 years ago. That was a, now that's a long time ago. Remember, it's like Edsel's been there for five years and before that, it was Bobby Diaco. It wasn't a great run under him. So it's just been, it's just been a real like dud. And well, also, let's let's keep in mind that that they were in the Big East, and the Big East was a power conference. It was a BCS conference. So they were able to, you know, you're saying there's a limited talent pool to begin with, but at least they were able to sell. Hey, stay home or stay in the region, and you'll be in a BCS conference with a chance to go to a BCS bowl. And they lost the ability to sell that. And um, here's the schedule they're going to play this year as an independent. It's kind of all over the map. They're going to open at Fresno State in week zero. Then they're going to play Holy Cross, Purdue, at Army, Wyoming, at Vanderbilt, at UMass, Yale. There's a little, there's a two game stretch of like regional teams. But then over the last month, what does UConn have in common with any of these teams? They host Middle Tennessee. They go at Clemson, good lord, at UCF versus Houston. Like, how do you get into that as a fan? There's no, who's your rival? I know they tried UCF at one point, but man. I mean, the reality is they're closer to Holy Cross than they are to Clemson. I'm not saying geographically, certainly they are, but I'm just saying, like, that is. They're closer to Holy Cross than to Houston. I mean, or, 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 you know, any of these. To Fre- certainly to Fresno State or Wyoming. I mean, um, right now, I mean, they do have Middle Tennessee at home. I think Middle Tennessee is better than them. But you're looking at, they probably have three realistically winnable games. Two are one AA or FCS opponents, which is Holy Cross and Yale. And the other one is at UMass, who's really bad too. So, you know, I don't know. Basically, UMass is your best hope to, uh, to win, a, uh, to win an, an FBS game. So he asked what would be a progress. So Randy Etzel's first three seasons, three and nine, one and 11, two and 10. Those last two were in the AAC and they went 0 and 8 in the AAC. Now we have no idea what this team's going to look like. They didn't play last year. So they've spent a year, really almost two years, just developing and developing. Uh, 
if they were to come out after that hibernation and go three and nine, like I wouldn't feel great about that as a UConn. I wouldn't say like, oh, they won more games than last time. Yeah, I think it's realistically, I don't think they're beating Fresno on the road. I think it's, you got to beat Holy Cross. You definitely got to beat Yale. You you need to beat UMass. Like I said, they're really bad. So then that leaves you with, are you beating Wyoming? You're not probably beating Army um, or Middle Tennessee. You got to beat one of those schools. I think you need to get, get to four wins to show why people around that program should pay any attention to it. I really hope that there is at least one Holy Cross football fan out there who listens to the podcast who 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 downloaded never in a million years expecting they would hear hear their school's name mentioned on this podcast. You know, Holy Cross w- football would probably make for a really good story because back in the 80s, Holy Cross football was it was not just Gordy Lockbaum. They were really really good and then a, a bunch of factors happened. They had a tragedy with a with a head coach who was like kind of a rising star who ended up um, who ended up passing away and then they de-emphasized football like Holy Cross I'm not saying they were North Dakota State wise at, at 1AA but they were really really good and then um, you know everything kind of turned for them in like the around like 1990 so enough Holy Cross history on that but all right, as always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.